think you write a major work because there's just something in you that tells you that you must do this or that finds this important or cathartic or useful. I think without that, there's just no way to get it done because there are a lot of points, just like residency, at which writing a book totally sucks and is distinctly unglamorous and not fun. Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social, or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests, deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do. We had so much fun speaking this week with Dr. Jillian Horton. Dr. Horton is an internist at the University of Manitoba and is a writer and just released a new book, We Are All Perfectly Fine. Dr. Horton explores in the book her process of dealing with burnout and her relationship to medicine. It's a beautiful meditation on becoming a physician and what that can do to both us and our families. We spoke with her about the process of writing the book as well as what we can do to make the culture of medicine better for everyone. Well, thank you for joining us on a very special uh, episode of of Cold Steel. We're extremely excited to have Dr. Jillian Horton uh, explore a number of things with us today. Welcome, Dr. Horton. We know how busy you are, and we appreciate your time so very much. Oh, thank you so much. It's absolutely my pleasure to be here with you. Um, You know, I was curious just just to start us off, if you'd be willing to let our listeners know where you grew up and and what your training pathway was like and how you ended up where you are now. Oh, my pleasure. So right now I'm in Winnipeg and my story also begins in Manitoba. So I was born in Brandon, which is a couple hours outside of, um, outside of Winnipeg for those of you who have never had the pleasure of driving through it. And I um, spent my life there until I was 17 And then I went to Western University where I did an undergraduate and a master's degree in the English language arts, actually, with a heavy dose of drama and general humanities. And I originally was really torn, probably like um, many physicians, between the idea of a career in something to do with the arts or humanities and a career in the sciences. And I had done a lot of sciences when I was a high school student. Again, probably like many of you, I did the National Science Fair circuit and, and that type of thing. But really, what drew me to medicine over those other things was the fact that from a young age growing up in Brandon, I had had two siblings who were very profoundly disabled due to just random life tragedies. 
And that had led to a lot of contact for me with the medical community and a lot of learning good and bad as a result. And when it came time for me to decide what to do with my life, to pursue this passion for the arts and this drive to write versus this idea of becoming a physician to work to change the system and make other families' experiences better, I just felt I had to use what I had learned and seen growing up. So I went to McMaster Medical School, and then I did my residency and fellowship in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto. But Manitoba had a fish hook in me. (laughs) And many people I know who uh, live in Winnipeg who didn't train here, they went away and then they came back. You know, our families do tend to uh, take up permanent residence here. So I came back about 16 years ago uh, to be near my family and support them. And both of my siblings, uh, unfortunately, have since passed away. But I continue to work at this kind of interesting intersection between the sciences and the arts. I guess that's my fate and um, have found a pretty good way to make things work here, both as a physician and also more recently as a writer. Yeah, you, you write so beautifully in the book about kind of this tension that you had uh, mm. of being a writer, of wanting to be a writer. I think you, you phrase it beautifully saying something like going and having sherry uh, with, with, with the tutors in, in Oxford and in that kind of those hallowed halls, because I think you were offered uh, was, the opportunity yeah. to go over to Oxford and do that. Uh, and then ultimately, you, you talk about medicine as almost like this calling, not not mm-hmm. so much even like a job, um, but maybe like a, as a vocation in, in the yeah. truest sense of the word uh, and as a calling. What what was it that kind of um, later on motivated you to, to come back and, and write this book uh, sort of years now into your practice as a physician? Mm-hmm. You know, I think most people who end up writing do it because of some internal drive to write. I think if you don't have that drive, you never get the job done. And the main reason I see that is writing a book, I think of it as an act of faith, but I also think of it as an act of total masochism. I mean, writing a book, the long haul is really, really, really hard. And I know everything that we do in medicine, you know, our training is hard, the milestones are hard, and it's it's just hard in a different kind of way. Because it at least when we are engaged in these long residencies and training processes, we know that at the end of it, there's a specific payoff. If you can finish your residency, you know that you will be a colorectal surgeon or you'll be a general internist or a family practitioner. So there's a finite promise of a goal as long as you can get the job done. But what's interesting with writing a book is there's no such promise. And the majority of people who want to write a book um, and have an aspiration of having their book reach mainstream publication, anyone who's trying to do that or tried to do that will know what an incredibly challenging goal it is and how distant the likelihood of uh, commercial success or even just that book seeing the light of day really is. So for me, Um, I toiled for years writing and writing and writing. I mean, this particular book I wrote relatively quickly, but I often joke that really before this book, I had about a seven or eight year apprenticeship and failure, you know, trying to write a book that it came very close. One particular work that I almost sold to McClelland and Stewart. And there's kind of an interesting related point about that too, which we could come back to later. But 
it's really the idea that I think you write because you have to. And I think you write a major work because there's just something in you that tells you that you must do this or that finds this important or cathartic or useful. I think without that, there's just no way to get it done because there are a lot of points, just like residency, at which writing a book totally sucks and is distinctly unglamorous and not fun. <laughs> Uh, that's a that's a beautiful description. You you, you know, like you you, you said, um, at, uh, sort of reaching or or getting to a mainstream audience outside of the medical world is a particularly interesting challenge. And I think for those of us, you know, that write a lot of textbooks, a lot of textbook chapters, a lot of peer-reviewed uh, publications, that's an entirely different world. Maybe one of the things that I would assume crosses over, and I'd love your your thoughts on it. The explanation is. I always teach the residents, you know, the the titles of these works are so critical. Like the, mm-hmm. a really great title in a peer-reviewed publication goes a very long way to, totally. to getting noticed. Yeah. I love the title of your book. I love it. We are all perfectly fine. I'm curious what what exactly you mean for those who haven't read it. Uh, <laughs> and where did you come up with that? It's It's superb. Oh, thanks, Jen. And, you know, I totally agree with you with what you said, the the title and the hook. And another interesting tidbit I've learned over the last several years, actually more just writing op-eds, is the idea of answering this question before you begin, am I writing about a topic or am I telling a story? That's often one of the most illuminating questions we can begin to answer when we try to figure out what we're communicating, how we want it to resonate, and what we hope it will achieve. But back to your great question about the title. So to me, this title sort of works on three different levels, and there are three different experiences for me that are really embodied within it. And one is we all know that in medicine, when we ask each other how we're doing and how we appraise how we're doing, we tend to say we're fine regardless of how we are. And there's some interesting literature, particular as um, as a surgeon, particularly from the surgical field, looking at how studies out of the Mayo Clinic that you've probably seen done by Tate Shanafelt, looking at how surgeons appraise their wellness, and they all over-appraise it relative to their peers. So most people think they are more fine than they really are compared to when they begin to look at that um, and rate their wellness and well-being on a, on a scale. So that's kind of one interesting idea that in medicine, we lose the ability, I think, to have a sense of how we're doing, to articulate how we're doing, to accurately appraise that. And some of that, I think, is because in medicine, we just sort of disembody, right? We have to, we separate from our bodies, as I talk about in the book, to work through our physiologic needs, our hypothalamic drives for sleep and food and rest. You know, we just, we learn to just say we're fine as a, as a default setting. And then there's this other angle to me of, you know, what do physicians most want for us to say, uh, patients rather, when we as physicians walk into a room, they want us to say that everything is fine. Everything is going to be fine. And there's sort of a craving for that consolation, that comfort, that reassurance from us is one of the, um, one of the main influences, I guess, that, that affects a lot of our dynamics, people wanting reassurances from us. And then there's this third piece to me, and it's the idea of John Kabat-Zinn sometimes talks about this idea of 
you know, if you look at the surface of the water and the water is choppy sometimes, and sometimes the water is very still, it's all dependent on the weather. And he talks about this idea of going where the water is deeper, dropping down further beneath the surface. And to me, it's that third idea that there is a way that often we need help learning to access, um, that it's it's a state of a more, um, not eternal calm, sounds like death, <laughs> but a, a state of something that we don't learn a lot in medicine about how to access it, you know, through some of these focused attention practices, through some of these meditation practices that actually, of course, have the physiologic effect of toning our vagal nerve, increasing our vagal tone. So tapping into uh, beginning to have ways of getting to know that feeling that we are okay, that we can find an anchor from moment to moment during some of our most difficult experiences. There's that level of fineness um, too. And you know, the title, actually originally when I wrote this book, I had the idea that it would be called The Room at Chapin Mill. Um, but as I really went back over the manuscript um, and found that maybe that title didn't mean as much to other people as it meant to me. The thing that kept emerging was this idea of how we're fine, um, what that means, the superficiality of that word, and yet also the reality of it, that even in the midst of the crisis that we are living through now and the, the really difficult clinical days and all the emotional distress and everything else, we can still find moments in which we do feel perfectly fine and allow that sentiment to give us some strength and um, succor in in more difficult times. Well, you know, you, you talk, that's such a beautiful quote from John Kabat-Zinn and, and this idea of going so deep. And I think one of the, the courageous things that you did in this book and, and putting yourself out there is you really go uh, quite deep into your own uh, struggles, your own triumphs, your own sadnesses, your own disappointments. And you talk a lot about you know your your own personal struggles with anorexia, for example, and and um, what it was like with your sister and and her disability, and it just struck me as such a challenging thing for physicians to do because in one sense, you know, we we wear these white coats, and they're mm -hmm. almost like kind of suits of armor. And I think Caroline mm -hmm. Moulton has this talk about surgeons uh, in in shining armor, and and mm -hmm. I think it's this very similar kind of idea that we want to project confidence to our patients and we, we want to appear perfectly fine, uh, to use your, your phrase. So what, you know, what was that like kind of opening yourself up like that in such a vulnerable way? And mm. how, did, how did that um, feel when actually putting that out into the world? Yeah, what a great question. And so to me, you know, the answer is that it is both um, easier and harder than it seems. And the answer is also that it is a process. It doesn't happen all at once. We test the waters um, a little bit at a time. And so, you know, for me, I guess a number of things happened over time. And remember I mentioned earlier this book that I had been working on for years prior to writing this book. It was a work of fiction about medicine. And I've shared a few times recently the story of how Almost in almost uh, selling that book, I was lucky enough to get it in front of the late great Canadian editor Ellen Seligman, and there was significant interest in uh, this book, McClelland and Stewart. 
But there were problems. They identified that there were a few structural issues and a few tonal problems that I needed to figure out a way to address before they would think about uh, offering to purchase that book. And one of the things in a long conversation with this editor about the book, one of the things that Ellen Seligman said, and she really gave me a gift when she said this, she said, you know, I, I just find myself wondering a little bit, is this book really fiction? And this, she said this to me probably six to seven years ago now in one of our, a conversation about the book. And that, even though at the time I couldn't recognize how that important, how important that observation was, it stayed with me. You know, when you hear something at a point in your life and you say, hmm, it resonates, but maybe you're not quite ready to accept it. And I wasn't ready to go there yet. And that's what was wrong with that first book. That's why, you know, again, I didn't see it at the time, but the authenticity was not there because I was telling a real story. I mean, I was telling all these things that had happened to me and just dressing them up as fiction. But then you have to say to yourself, for a reader, one of the things I think we appreciate when we read certain kinds of personal narratives is the risk that is inherent in authenticity. We respect that if it's well-boundaried and we don't sense that someone is trying to manipulate us or make us feel sorry for them. You know, those things are turnoffs. But we believe, you know, we know authenticity when we see it, even if we can't always say why. And that's one of the things that she really taught me in that comment was that the problem with the writing, and again, you know, fiction writers are not necessarily encumbered by this. It's just that that's what I was doing with this book. I was telling my own story, but not really being brave enough to own it, you know, because at the end of the day, somebody could read it and say, well, you know, she probably embellished this because it's a work of fiction. She's not saying it happened to her. And I slowly realized that in order to write a book that would really resonate as authentic. For me, writing about medicine, maybe it won't be that way someday writing about something else. Maybe I'll be able to write fiction about, you know, family life or whatever, but writing about medicine, it just was falling flat for that reason. And so I slowly came to the realization that if I wanted to write the book that I knew I was technically and emotionally capable of, I was going to have to own that experience. And I was going to have to go places that were going to be uncomfortable. But it is one nice thing about having the time, Amir, to write a book because it's a long process. You have a lot of time to get used to the idea. And you can, you know, seek the input of your trusted uh, friends and mentors. And then the people who don't know you, right? Agents, publishers, I mean, they will respond quite viscerally to, to what is too much, what is not enough, what feels inauthentic. And I guess the other interesting thing, a lot of people since the book came out, they say to me, wow, like this must be so overwhelming for you to have this out into the world and all this personal stuff. And by now I'm totally desensitized to it, right? Because this book has been in someone else's hands for two years this October, right? Since you, the first time a publisher, um, the first time my publisher saw it. So I had a long time to get used to the idea and accept this idea and feel comfortable that I was putting all this out into the world. But I guess, because I think this is such an important question, and there really has been uh, just lately a lot of interest in the research question of the power and utility of personal narratives for culture change in medicine. You know, I think some of the things I really had to work with, I often identify them as kind of 
categorically five different things. One is the fear of disclosing personal health information and the liability and the professional failure that goes along with that. Obviously, we all see personal health information as sacred. So working through that is inherently challenging, but it can be done. And, you know, having read my book, you know that sometimes I tracked down real families and got their permission to share actual stories. Other times I couldn't do that. So I simply had to create stories based on my experience in order to protect the sanctity of fear. But everything in the book, uh, you know, has an origin in my, in my life, as I've alluded to in the author's note. And then I guess the other things, you know, we fear social pain. We fear our colleagues saying, oh, God, what is Chad writing about in this? This is so personal. Yuck, we don't want to know this. And we fear uh, people, sometimes the gender narrative, people saying, oh, this is, you know, a woman writing about this. And she should have just chosen a different career if she can't handle what this profession demands. Or the other thing was, you know, I write quite candidly about some things that happened to me as a medical educator that weren't good. And even that was a calculus for me. You know, I'm a lifelong medical educator. It's so important to me in terms of identity and values. But even there, I had to weigh, am I okay saying, just like that editor who said to me, is this really fiction? Am I okay saying, mm, I'm not going to talk about that because it's going to stress people out and it might promote some backlash and it's going to make people uncomfortable. If, if we want to change this culture, we have to be willing to talk about every single part of it. We can't say, sorry, that's off limits. Sorry, we accept the idea that um, hierarchies only work one way, that there's never harassment that occurs in other directions, that the learning environment is not part of an ecosystem. You know, So even all those kinds of things, just a slow process of saying, yes, there's risk inherent in writing about these things and the, all of these aspects I've just listed can cause us distress when we write honestly. But what I decided at the end of the day is there's a much bigger risk to not telling a story like this. I know that I'm technically capable of writing a book that that really depicts some of the realities of medicine. And therefore, there comes a point when you say, maybe, therefore, I actually have a responsibility to do that. Maybe my ability to communicate in a way that hopefully feels realistic and authentic and universal to my peers, maybe by not doing that, I'm taking a much bigger risk and, and failing to do what I set out to do originally, which was have some positive impact on a lot of core aspects of our culture. So it's scary, it's threatening. And I, I guess the last thing I'll say, very long answer, is through the process of, you know, just this happened by fluke, right? Because when COVID hit, like all of us, I was beside myself. You're sort of going a bit ballistic as you watch people make the wrong decisions from the public health perspective and poor communication. And I felt I had to do something. So I just started writing op-eds. And interestingly, those op-eds became progressively more personal, uh, put me like any of us who have spoken out in COVID, you know, about COVID, they do subject us to more harassment and kind of trolling and that type of stuff. But, you know, that was also a great way to flex that courage muscle around personal narrative each time to think, oh, I'm going to get backlash about this. And yeah, some jerks would, you know, would harass you and troll you. But much more commonly, the response was, thank you. Thank you for being brave enough to say that. Or, oh my God, I had no idea that other people felt this way. You articulated something I have been trying to say for 10 years or carrying with me privately. And that is what keeps, you know, 
those kinds of messages, that kind of feedback, it's just like people cheering you on. And each time it makes you a little bit more able to tolerate more risk. Yeah, I mean, I've seen on Twitter just the outpouring of support and and uh, acknowledgement and, and just sheer kind of thank thanks and gratitude yeah. for for reading your book and i think it just resonated with so many people because you were able to stay so honest and true to what your experience was and and what what sort of the challenges are in our current training environments and what you know the the career of medicine sometimes does to us and mm-hmm. what it forces us to do and I, I want to circle back to, you know, the, the piece that you talked about taking that calculated risk as a associate dean, because I, I actually thought that was one of the things that really resonated with me so powerfully. And, and mm. Dr. Ball and I have talked about this so much, um, you know, on the podcast and offline. And you have this great quote where you say, medicine shouldn't infringe on their wellness at any time or in any way, as if the associate's uh, dean's job was not to make health, medical education safer and more humane but to make it more convenient for them personally, not so much level the playing field as raise the mountain. <laughs> can you can you talk about that? Because to me, I think that discussion and that acknowledgement of kind of the neediness sometimes of us as trainees kind of gets muddied with this idea of taking care of people in medicine. Like, can you unpack that for us a bit? <laughs> That's such a, a great question. And you're, you know, you're absolutely right. This is a particularly tough conversation right now, because especially as an educator, it's very easy to have this message quickly misconstrued. And I think it's why you almost can't really see these things until you have a clear cut track record as an educator of being compassionate, of being student centric, of really advocating uh, for students in a meaningful way. And one of the funniest things, Amir, is, you know, after reading that chapter, so many students have sent me messages saying, you know, I just feel like I asked too much of you. And I just sort of laugh my head off because I think you're not the people I'm talking about. You are exactly the people that I was there for in the first place. The people with, you know, sick parents, the people with health issues, the people with personal issues that were really challenging and difficult, the people who had painful cases that traumatized them during med school. I wanted to be there 100% in their corner. But as with many things, you know, what's one of the shifts that worries me in medical education, you know, some of this I pin on accreditation. So we've had an accreditation culture that has shifted, and it's critical that we have an accreditation process, right? We desperately need standardization, but I'm not sure that we use the right language in accreditation. You know, is being satisfied or very satisfied the ideal metric for judging the quality of our education? I mean, I'm not satisfied with some of the things that happened in my residency around my medical education, but I can definitely tell you that some of those things uh, made me a better physician. Um, But again, that's where the conversation becomes explosive because people say, well, what are you talking about? Are you saying it's fine to be up for 30 hours? No, I think for the most part, knowing that there is lots of nuance and lots of variation between specialties, I do think generally our work hours are too long. They exceed what we are actually physiologically capable of. And we know, again, when we look at the data, work hours longer than 60 weeks are one of the things that are associated with higher burnout in all professions. But 
you know, it's really this idea that framing the learning environment as a place that it's our job to make safe, as opposed to framing it that we have to make our entire culture safe and better and higher quality. And that is a responsibility that goes both ways. You know, so I feel that just the shift, you know, like even the even in the idea of entitlement in medical education and in medicine in general, entitlement in medicine as a behavior that we see, you know, in my peers, in people who are practicing physicians, like it doesn't just start one day, the minute you end residency, right? Sometimes it's a ripple that permeates our entire culture. Sometimes it is baked into our culture, it's something that people come with because medicine is still in many cases, something that is more likely to be an opportunity for people who come from backgrounds of privilege. And so all these things, you know, really have to be discussed very openly. But the problem so often is that in trying to discuss them with subtlety, recognizing that they're difficult conversations, that more than one thing can be true at once, that the learning environment can involve uh, a lot of harassment and abuse for trainees, and yet everything is not harassment and abuse. That is a tough conversation. And the political climate right now um, can sometimes make that more difficult. And certainly, I'm sure you've also had colleagues who have said, you know, I'm afraid I looked at someone in a way that they didn't like. And I, you know, I was squinting at them because I didn't have my glasses on and they said I was glaring at them. And now they're saying that, you know, this is abuse, this is harassment. And so it, you know, like these are real kinds of examples of things that are happening in our learning environment right now. And it's just kind of cheapening, muddying, destroying the whole purpose of what we're trying to do. So, it's complex and we have to be willing to tackle it as a complex problem, as interpersonal things, as very complex, as, you know, the whole um, range of behavior variable situations, um, as opposed to just saying, you know, I, I don't think we help anybody when we take an approach that's just like, it, you know, if you say that I was rude to you, then there's no other possible explanation for things. Because guess what? five years after you finish your residency, you're going to be an attending. And if we haven't created more um, nuance, sophistication, and fairness, and and just, you know, emotional intelligence in that whole process, you're just going from one environment that was overly protected to now an environment where you have no protection, and suddenly you are on the other side. And there shouldn't be sides. You know, this should really be looking at the life cycle of our profession. How do we make everything better? Not just one short phase of it, because that doesn't help you when that phase is over for you. So lots of thoughts about that. I'm curious to hear what to, what you think of some of that too. You know, you've unpacked so, so, so many things there in, in such a beautiful way. There's, there's so many different directions we could reflect on, but I, I want to particularly focus on you know, your concept of the reality that, that, and I hate to use the word bullying in this scenario, but that friction can, can go both ways. And mm -hmm. you can be in scenarios as the educator or as the physician or as the, as the, as whatever sort of a descriptor you want, where it does come from, um, um, 
maybe non-traditionally recognized sources and, and whether that's you know, a nursing complaint in an emergency mm-hmm. department against a service or a physician, whether that's an, a trainee, um, you know, you, towards a, an educator, and, and you've given a, a beautiful example of that with a sort of an, a, um, you know, an, an incorrect or a, or a challenging glance. How do we, two parts, I guess, how do we deal with that reality? Because I th- think that for many physicians who find themselves um, unwittingly or unpredictably at the um, sort of end result of those processes, as you point out, that are now very politically entrenched and tend to be guilty before discussion. Mm-hmm. How, how do they address that? How should they frame that? And then I'm curious, you know, these concepts that you've you've provided us, you know, in the last few minutes are are so like I, I mean, I I'm biased. I I love them. They make they're, they're beautiful to me. They make sense. But how do we actually mechanize that um, to a practical uh, extent in our training systems uh, as residency currently is sort of constructed and how our interaction with, with trainees in general goes? Yeah, what, what a, a number of great questions. And, you know, just again, to go back to that, the first point that you made about the, the non-traditional uh, constructs and examples of um, harassment uh, or bullying or whatever that can occur. You know, if we look at our current construct in accreditation that uh, it, the focus is on making the learning environment safe. I always remember 20 years ago when I was a resident, I was working with another resident who actually made a comment after a negative evaluation to our preceptor about, uh, you know, he was so angry, he felt like killing her. And there was no response to that event. And if you think about just that example, you know, or the response was extremely muted in that case, to put it mildly. But if you think about it, our current constructs don't allow for that, you know, example that a that sort of bottom up uh, type of we don't necessarily call that or frame that as harassment or abuse. And so it's a recognizing that our models are quite crude; that they are based solely on constructs of power and not all the variables, including gender, including uh, being a member of a BIPOC community, including all these other things, as you mentioned. But you know, one thing that I think often helps, the more relational an environment is, um, the less likely we are to resort to complaint processes when there is um, you know, sort of a one out of 10, two out of 10, three out of 10 misunderstanding. If we have a more relational environment and, you know, an environment where we are encouraged to talk to each other, to know a little bit about each other, those conflicts will not tend to ignite in the same way that they do when we know nothing about each other. So you're meeting another physician for the first time, you know nothing about them. You don't realize that your kids go to the same school, that you both went to the same medical school. There's nothing to connect you. This is one of the ways I think that just bad behavior, rude behavior, antisocial behavior takes off. So that's one part. But the second thing is, we have a pattern in medicine, as we all know, of only intervening when things are at a crisis. And if we look at some of the management models for difficult behavior in physicians, for example, um, Hickson's model, the cup of coffee, you know, intervening very early when if we're colleagues and you hear that I've someone reputable or or whose perspective you, uh, you know, has inherent validity, or even if you don't know them, if you just hear that, you know, one day I was rude to someone or, or snappy, et cetera, sharing that feedback with me, not as a complaint, not 
putting me in front of a jury, not stripping me of my role, but saying, you know what? I heard this about you and I'm just telling you about it. I know there are two sides to every story. And if I hear it again, we'll, we'll have to have a different kind of conversation. And what's interesting is you probably know in a lot of the um, literature around disruptive physician behavior is that initial intervention is extremely effective. So most people, when there's a conversation like that, they will never have a second conversation with their um, their superior about behavior that will truncate a lot of it. But we also know that somewhere between two to four percent of physicians just have difficulty being respectful towards anyone. And so that's one of the other problems we face, right? Those two to 4%. And this is something I wrote about fairly recently in the Globe and Mail, this idea that these people, well, they're so valuable that they can just continue to do whatever they would do. And the system accommodates them. The system modifies its behavior. People walk on eggshells around them, et cetera. And it, you know, it sort of occurs to me as well that these problems, for the most part, when we look at them in institutions, everyone names the same people as being difficult in, in a lot of cases. You know, we all know if, if you were to survey, who are the three most interpersonally challenging people to work with in your group of 40 people? The lists are going to look very similar, right? You're going to have a lot of uh, repetition. But what's, you know, interesting is when you look at how many times, like who has, who's dealt with those people? What have the interventions been? The answer is often nothing. They've never received any feedback. They've never been on any kind of behavior management problem, even though these are chronic issues, not those singular kind of things that we talk about that are dealt with in the tribunal fashion these days. And, you know, something that occurred to me recently in terms of this problem with the the way the pendulum has swung so far in terms of how we're dealing with signal in the learning environment. It's to me, when you think about it, most of the people who are now making the decisions about what we do, policies in the learning environment, how we're going to deal with problematic behavior, they're actually the same people who have not been able for the last 30 plus years to deal with disruptive behavior in their own ranks. So now they're applying the same failed metrics that, you know, they're doing the same things that they were unable to do using those same techniques now to try to address the learning environment. And when you look at it that way, it becomes more clear why um, those efforts are not being successful, because actually those people are being tasked now with just doing another version of something that they really haven't been able to do before either. And it tells us that we need an entirely new approach and way of looking at these things instead of just this, you know, kind of hitting everything over the head with a hammer. I agree so so much with everything you said. And you know, your your start there about uh, being mindful and putting effort into building relationships in our environments is so is so critical. And I, I think it's probably, you know, intuitive and sounds commonsensical to most people who will listen to this. But the reality is, and it's not an excuse, I think it is just a reality and it can be overcome that, you know, our inpatient in hospital environments are challenging environments to do that in. If you happen to work, for example, at a quaternary care facility with a thousand beds and all the illness and the pressures that come with that, sometimes it is hard to create those and and and, and nurture those relationships. And, it, and, and again, certainly not impossible, but you're right. It, it does take effort. It does take yeah. thought, conscious thought um, to, to really achieve that. And I couldn't agree more, whether it's between individuals at its, at its core or between groups, um, yeah. you know, ser- services, yeah. um, 
it's it's essential, eh? and there, there's so totally. many different ways to achieve that. But yeah. boy, oh boy, it's important. And, yeah. and you and you see that for for those of us, I think, that travel around in various capacities a lot, right? You 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 you, you walk into Hospital X in Los Angeles, and you just get the immediate sense of the camaraderie and the yeah. productivity, and the yeah. and you you say, "Wow, am I jealous of this environment?" For example, potentially, you know. You know, you reminded me of something, Chad, I always thought this moment was so masterful. A surgical colleague who I um, actually had just met for the first time, he had come back to Winnipeg after working somewhere else. And one day overnight, one of my internal medicine residents had had conflict with one of the surgical residents. And my resident called me and said, you know, this person was doing this and this was so unpleasant and they were so inappropriate. And so I challenged them and they said this and they were, you know, really just relaying if I could have summarized what they were telling me and what that other resident was probably telling their attending, it was just like, I'm right, they're wrong, you know? So we were sitting doing our uh, case review post-call and the surgical team came into the ward. And I, again, I'd never met this surgeon before, but he came in and you could see the tension right away between these two residents. They were ready and they started sort of sparring passive aggressively. And the attending surgeon stopped for a minute and he he said, you know what you guys need? He said, you need to go have a cup of coffee together. <laughs> and I was just so relieved to hear somebody else say that. You know, it was just, it was also a really masterful moment, right? It was de-escalating and illustrating to them, like, this is not about turf or our tribes or just vanquishing uh, the other party. This is relational, you know, and you think if this to me, if you look at some of the programs that have been really effective at mitigating burnout, the Mayo Clinic's model of having people have meals together, that kind of thing, the, that fancy French word of commensality, simply breaking bread together. I mean, these are the things that make us like each other. And when we like each other and feel a little bit of empathy for one another and know just a little bit about the ways in which we are alike, it is much harder than to mistreat each other, to say nasty things about each other. It's, it's sort of trying to find things to like and connect with um, about each other. And you you know, as we all know, this actually is not typically cultivated in teaching hospitals. And our departments become more and more insular, more and more prone to slagging each other. And at the end of the day, that hurts patients because it means we cannot collaborate as well as we need to. Our relationships and our psychological safety dealing with each other absolutely influence patient care. And the second thing is it influences our quality of life. You know, we all, I remember a, a physician at the University of Rochester, I'm blanking on his name, but he spoke at the ICPH a couple of years ago in Toronto. And the comment that he made that just stayed with me is that we all want a more relational environment, whether we know it or not. And I think about that constantly, you know, that even my colleagues who I sometimes really struggle to find anything you know, to celebrate in there, <laughs> uh, in our interactions, or to find anything to uh, feel empathy towards, I think to myself, this person has been conditioned to behave this way in, an addition, in a different environment, for the most part, they probably would not be so difficult um, 
to work with. And, and, you know, the last part, of course, for the humility piece of it is for all of us to accept that when we have interpersonal conflict, for the most part, usually we have also done something to make that conflict worse because our motivations uh, and our insights into our own motivations are often really limited, which to me is where that mindfulness piece and that self-awareness aspect of things becomes really helpful. We can begin to see our own patterns with a little bit more um, clarity. Oh, I think that that's so beautifully said. You, you know, I think if we were to stereotype maybe unfairly, but I, I think probably honestly about physicians in general, myself included, we certainly do have big blind spots when it comes to self in, you know, insight and, and uh, a number of the descriptors that, that you use on occasion. And I think they, you know, that's, that's truer or, or lesser true over the extent of a career. And we have to be mindful of it for sure. One of the terms you you used um, in that piece was was burnout. You know, we we've been lucky enough to have Jane Lemaire uh, talk to us about burnout here, and I'm sure you know Jane well. But I was curious, in particular, how you define burnout, and then obviously as a as a vessel, as a voyage, um, you know, most publicly with regard to your book, how it impacted you uh, uh, personally, because we. We really did sort of in that in that preceding podcast with Jane dance around the academics and the mechanics of it without really talking about it at a personal level. Yeah, well, the personal level, I think, is almost the most meaningful one to answer the question on, because I think when we think of the usual trifecta of what we think of as Maslow's definition of burnout, you know, we think of that in a very rigid way. We have a preconceived notion of what that actually looks like the decreased feelings of personal accomplishment, the depersonalization, the sense that the work doesn't matter or feel pleasurable, etc. But you know, I sometimes like the idea, there's a, a quote in her work elsewhere about the dislocation between our, our values and what we're doing. I, I think that's a very powerful framing. But what did it feel like for me? You know, I don't think I ever recognized myself at many previous points in my career is burnt out because for one thing, my interactions with patients never changed. You know, I'm always, I always feel like I'm quite present with patients that I'm quite engaged that I'm, I'm, I don't feel ever depersonalized from them. And, you know, because of that, I don't think I ever fully recognized myself as having the syndrome of burnout, but here was the manifestation for me. It was coming home at work and having absolutely from work rather, and having absolutely nothing left, not one other thing to put on the table, my kids and my spouse and my friends and my extended family getting the absolute leftover scraps of me and my attention. So for me, it looked like paying full attention to my patients, being totally present with them and having nothing left for the rest of my life. That other part of my life was so atrophied and you know, the emotional uh, depth of it was so limited. That for me um, is where I really have experienced depersonalization over the years. And this fits with our knowledge of, you know, how physicians 
um, behave and experience burnout, right? Our patient care is the last thing to go. So when we have colleagues who are doing a poor job uh, with patient care, uh, snapping at patients, being disrespectful, that kind of thing, and that's not characteristic for them, we know that's a very late stage finding. So sometimes I think our framing, you know, the way that we think of it, the, the feelings of what emotional exhaustion feels like, it, it doesn't have to be localized to work. You know, for a lot of us, probably my guess is that it just manifests in every other part of our life, that there's nothing aside from work that we feel engaged with or connected to. And that's, that, that's a way that for me, uh, looking back, I really see that pattern cycling throughout the last decade of my life before I became more aware of the things that I needed to do to, um, to deal with and address that for sure. And I think sometimes when I've shared that with people, I've certainly had a handful of emails too, when I've been talking about that after the book coming out, where very senior people have written me and said, I never thought of it that way. And actually that is me. And I never considered that to be burnout, but I guess it is. So to me, that's, that's one of the things that when we're looking at the academic definition, we have to be ready to look and apply that to the rest of our lives to see how, um, how those patterns may be manifesting in ways that actually are really painful for us to see in totality. Yeah, it's interesting. I think people always talk about, you know, having balance in their lives and, you know, make sure you have a hobby or, I don't know, go for a run every morning and that's going to prevent you from uh, or yeah. protect you from burnout. But, you know, it, it it's not actually necessarily that you don't have the hobbies. It's that you're already at this point where you can't appreciate or enjoy the things that that you like doing anymore. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think you're so right by saying that. Let me ask you one final question, um, which is, you know, you have two children and, yeah. you know, you, you talk so much about what, what a challenge it, sometimes medicine puts on us and a burden perhaps that it puts on all of us. Would you recommend or encourage, or maybe the better way of saying it is, would you discourage your children from going into medicine, having kind of experienced all that you've experienced? Mm. People have asked me that before, and probably both of you know uh, some of that literature around uh, do physicians recommend generally that their kids go into medicine. And in lots of the U.S. studies in particular, there's data that the predominance of physicians say they would not recommend a career in medicine to their kids. My answer is a bit more subtle. And I think I would really want to know their why, what their motivation was, that they were going in with eyes wide open, and what meaning and purpose they thought they would derive from the work. Because as we know in the literature, a strong sense of what our meaning and purpose is and what our connection is to that meaning and purpose through the work that we do is one of the things that gives us immunity from burnout. And one of the things that continues to make our work feel more like a calling than a job. So for me, really exploring that with them and making sure that they knew that, I would not discourage one of my kids from going into medicine, but boy, I would want to make sure that they had as much of an understanding as possible of what they were doing. And, and frankly, I would probably want to make sure they uh, read my book. <laughs> You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs 
at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again. Thanks again.